Lionel Corbett, MD, Jungian analyst, will be visiting us in Chicago on December 8th to speak on The Soul in Anguish, a depth psychological approach to suffering. For more information about this program, visit our website, jungchicago.org. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. A psychological approach to the Bible with Murray Stein, Ph.D. This lecture, Origins, The Ego Once and Twice Born, is part one of the series, A Psychological Approach to the Bible One. It was recorded in 1989. Jungian analyst Murray Stein leads a study of the Bible for its insight into psychological questions about the ego's proper relation to the self, the ultimate aim of individuation in conjunctio, and encounters with the shadow. The set includes the following lectures. 1. The Origins, The Ego Once and Twice Born. 2. Bondage versus Freedom, Ego in Complex, Ego in Self. 3. Good and Evil, the problem of shadow, and four, individuation, the journey of faith. Murray Stein, PhD, is a training analyst at the International School for Analytical Psychology in Zurich, Switzerland. His most recent publications include The Principle of Individuation, Jung's Map of the Soul, and the Edinburgh International Encyclopedia of Psychoanalysis, where he is an editor of the Jungian sections. He lectures internationally on topics related to analytical psychology and its applications in the contemporary world. Dr. Stein is a graduate of Yale University, the University of Chicago, and the C.G. Jung Institute of Zurich. He is a founding member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. There will be a link to the complete series in the show notes, as well as links to Dr. Stein's other lectures. This um, course is called A Psychological <clears throat> Approach to the Bible. And I want to begin by speaking about this approach and spend this first session uh, on that with some general introductory remarks and perspectives uh, to lay the groundwork for our further reflections and discussions as we go along. There are many ways to read a text like the Bible, and you can compare it to reading a novel uh, in this sense. For example, if you read, uh, I've recently finished reading George Eliot's novel Middlemarch, it's a 19th century novel, a long narrative like the Bible is. And you can read a novel like that from many points of view or with many purposes, different purposes in mind. I read it mostly for entertainment. I was interested in, I got caught by the characters and wanted to know how it came out. So it, it, that pulled me through this rather long and dense text. How, how, what's going to happen next? So there's a certain entertaining quality to reading 
a text like the Bible as well. Or one could read that particular novel for what it says about uh, the times, the life, the way that people lived in the mid-19th century in rural England, uh, their social structure, their patterns of behavior and interaction, and all of that's very interesting. So you could read it as a kind of cultural historical document. <coughs> if you were interested in the life of the author, George Eliot, who apparently was quite an interesting person, used the name of a man but was actually a female, um, and you knew enough about her life and the details, I'm sure a reading of this novel would give you some further information about her actual life. I mean, you'd have to know quite a lot about her biography in order to do that, but there are elements in the story, apparently, that are based on her life, people she met, incidents that happened. She wrote about these in letters to various people and so on. So uh, you could read the novel uh, for its biographical material. Or you could read it, and this was another of my interests in it, you could read it for its psychological insight. Uh, This particular author has a very finely developed sense of how people interact, their emotional life, uh, how um, uh, emotions develop and the twists and turns in relationships, and particularly on the subject of marriage, she is exquisite. I, I don't even know if she was married, but she sure does know a lot about how people get married, what happens after they're married, the disappointments and disillusionments and struggles and rewards and all of that. So uh, you can read it for its psychology, its uh, insight into how the human psyche and how emotional life uh, works. So I simply use that as a a comparison, uh, a point of comparison, and I want us to think about reading the Bible in a particular way. So um, the remarks I'm going to make now have to do with reading the Bible psychologically. And as I go along, I'll contrast that with some other possible ways of reading the Bible as history, as theology, as moral prescription, as poetry, as story, so on and so forth. This is on reading the Bible psychologically. So uh, we are going to engage in psychological interpretation as we go along reading the Bible. And in this case, the material that comes under our inspection just happens to be the Bible, in a way. Okay, We could as well be reading the Iliad or the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Upanishads, etc. And from a methodological point of view, reading psychologically, there wouldn't be any difference to speak of. The Bible, of course, is a privileged text, though, in the Western tradition, so we all have special feelings about it. So it does feel differently at first reading the Bible from, say, reading the Iliad or the Odyssey. This is a book that has given grounding and authority to generations of men and women in their search for truth and meaning. It's not like a novel in that sense. People don't read Middlemarch, for example, for... Uh, finding out about the nature of reality, necessarily. Since the human being is gifted and cursed with a loosely organized instinctual system, that is, our instincts don't tell us very much, uh, don't give us a whole lot to go on when we try to decide about what to do and think and feel and how to behave, 
it's necessary that other more conscious and cultural rules of living have had to be evolved. So human being needs culture. With animals, most of their decisions are made by instinct. On the other hand, we look to cultural norms. Cultures would be impossible without such socially approved and and culturally evolved norms. And once these norms and rules of life and belief and behavior are encoded in sacred texts or in constitutions and bills of rights and so on, they become written in stone. That is, they assume the power and authority that instinct would have in the world of nature. So for a culture, a sacred text is as instinct is in nature, in animal behavior. So in a sense, cultural norms replace or stand in for instinct. Or we could say that myths organize our drives and our desires. Jung said that the archetype is the image of the instinct. Archetypes give form to our impulses. So archetypes, myths, cultural norms, and so on, also dimly and perhaps only indirectly anymore, reflect something of nature's rules, the instincts. So the norms of society, its mores, cannot be totally contradictory to nature. They can't be totally at odds with one another, culture and nature, or the species would die out. That particular tribe or race that adopted cultural norms that contradicted all instinctual life would simply die out as does sometimes happen with certain groups like the Shakers and so on, that their norms are so antithetical to nature that their particular cultural form eventually dies out. And it doesn't have enough persuasive power anymore to recruit new persons into it. And yet cultures and societies are vastly different in their preferences, customs, and practices, and in their sacred texts. So we can see that there's an enormous elasticity in the human species when it comes down to organizing our our drives and desires. In one culture, women bind their feet, for example. In another, they wear nose rings. In another, they shave their heads. In another, they wear expensive costumes. None of these customs, we would have to admit, are essentially human, more essentially woman than another. The hope is that a society's customs and norms do not entirely eradicate what is essential and normative, instinctual and archetypal, or else the individuals, if they survive at all, will suffer terribly stunted and stultified lives. Now, the Bible is one of the human race's sacred texts. It belongs to a particular tradition, and reflects this tradition's norms and cultural beliefs, its practices, and its sense of the heights and depths of human and superhuman existence. So what I'm doing is sort of backing you away from the text a little bit, because we're all so close to it, to see it within the whole range of sacred texts that the human species has produced over the millennia. We could say that the Bible represents a perspective To a degree, it is, like all cultural artifacts, culture-bound. 
But like all cultural artifacts too, and particularly those enduring and classical ones, it does not violate the generally human substrate of instinct and archetype overly much, or else the people of the book, as the conservators of the Bible have been called, would not have survived on this earth. Now, the Bible proposes a particular canalization of libido, as we would say in in, uh, Jungian psychology. That is, libido being uh, human energy and uh, interest, drive, impulse. The Bible proposes a particular organization of this energy into human activity, symbol, behavioral patterns, rules, and laws, and articles of belief that give, that give space for humans to express their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs and aspirations. In other words, the, the way in which the Bible and its tradition organizes libido, on the one hand, canalizes it and limits it, libido. On the other hand, it gives space and forms to express our human nature. You know, Jung's view on religion was that, in one sense, it's a defense against chaos, against total disorganization. On the other hand, religions, the great religions, provide forms, symbols, for us to pour our own psyches into and express ourselves within those uh, limitations. So uh, religion is both, in Jung's view, defense and opportunity to... Uh, express ourselves in an organized way. The Bible is the constitution and the bill of rights, if you will, of a religious tradition. We are the heirs of that tradition, and whether we believe in the articles of faith and the propositions that are housed in this sacred text and enshrined in the religious practices of our culture, uh, the culture built around this text, we nevertheless live within the culture that has formed itself around this book. This book is the constant reference point of our Western culture, much more so than, say, the Iliad or the Odyssey, even though those classical texts have been very important as well. And this book is a constant reference point, even if it is no longer an important arbiter in matters of state or politics. In other words, If there's a dispute uh, in the Supreme Court, we don't make reference to the Bible to decide uh, the issue. We make reference to the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. But nevertheless, for our culture, the Bible still functions in a kind of subliminal way as a reference point. We all, uh, whether we recognize it or not, we think and and respond and react morally, ethically, Uh, spiritually in a way that has been formed over the millennia uh, by this tradition. If one stands within the circle of traditional faith and practice, particularly if you're in the fundamentalist area, then the Bible uh, is read as authority, as absolute authority, and as literal truth. So if you read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and here's how he did it, that is taken to be scientifically factual. If, on the other hand, one reads the Bible from outside of this circle uh, (coughs) of, uh, of faith and practice, 
then it can be approached in a wide variety of other ways. It can be read as literature. There's a book recently published, The Bible is Literature, a collection of essays from uh, by many uh, noted literary critics. A very interesting book, and there you can see how literary critics read the Bible. It's a, it's a different approach from the theological one. So you can read the Bible as literature, as historical document. It tells you something about the life and mores of the times from roughly... Oh, the earliest documents in the Bible, they think, date from about 1800 B.C., and the latest ones to about the second, first, second century A.D. So you can read the Bible as telling you something about the history of that period, what happened then, and it's, it's uh, surprisingly accurate. Uh, the archaeological evidence in the last 30 or 40 years has tended mostly to support a lot of the historical detail given in the Bible, much to the surprise of the scholars. So it isn't bad as a historical document telling you about uh, places, happenings, events, people, and so on. Or it can be read as a source book of general human wisdom, like one would read the Upanishads or the Tao Te Ching. Uh, One gets insight into general spiritual life. One can read it that way. But if one approaches the Bible as a psychologist, what then? How to read it? Of course, this would depend on your psychology and what kind of psychological school you belong to or or, uh, believe in or want to use. Uh, Following Jung, uh, which is what we'll be doing in these coming sessions, the psychological approach to the Bible closely resembles our approach to the dream. And I'm going to make some rather radical proposals now that may shock you. I hope it does. It'll give you something to think about. We will take the Bible as we would a dream, plus associations, commentary, and ego, sometimes ego-defensive, structuring. We will read the Bible for its personality, What kind of personality does the Bible reveal? So we're psychologists, and we're uh, going to take off on this tangent. Theologians would tear their hair. (laughs) Now, one objection to treating the Bible as a dream, as the obvious one, is uh, as an obvious one, namely that there is no dreamer. Who dreamt this dream, if a dream it is? Of course, I do not mean to claim that the Bible is literally a dream, that someone or some persons dreamt these materials up and then encoded them as history. Obviously, that's not true. So, no, the Bible is not a dream in that literal sense. But I also want to claim something a little stronger than a metaphorical analogy in saying that the Bible is a dream record for our purposes of interpretation. Yes, we are treating it as if it were a dream for purposes of interpretation, but I want to make a second denial in addition to the first one and say that the inside of the Bible, the heart and soul of it, is not not a dream. It's neither a dream nor not a dream. So I'm going to leave us on that paradox. (laughs) In other words, there are elements in it at its core that are more than dream-like. They are clearly 
visionary, sublime, elevated ideas and images, sometimes actually dreams, that are emerging from the dark background of the human mind into the light of awareness. Yes, but even if this is so, says the critic, the Bible is made up of the products of many, many separate individuals who are divided by vast spaces of time. Thousands of years separate them. Surely this would prevent us from treating it as a single dream. Again, my response is yes and no. It is true that many individuals contributed the material that went into the Bible. In addition to the religious visionaries, like the prophets, for example, the poets, and so on, there are the historical chroniclers and the scribes who encoded the laws and the priests who edited them, edited the books and, and consolidated them, put them together, the poets, and finally and perhaps most importantly, as I uh, will go into in some detail later, the compilers and editors, the scribes, some persons put all of this material together. So the Bible shows evidence of many hands stitching and many psyches dreaming dreams and having visions, such as the prophets, the poets, and the myth makers. But also, no, I would deny that this excludes the possibility of considering the Bible in its entirety as a single dream. By this I mean a continuing unfolding revelation of the depths of the collective unconscious of this people, the Hebrews and the post-Hebrews. And sometimes I'll refer to the Christians as the post-Hebrews. <clears throat> and sometimes to the Hebrews as the pre-Christians. The Bible is a reflection of the processes at work in the collective unconscious of this people. As the dreams and visions, the laws and God images emerged from the depths and combined with the lived life of this people in history, <clears throat> there clearly was a synchronistic bond between inner and outer history, such that both must be considered symbolic, symbolical. The dream vision symbols are always grounded in history. They, they don't just sit up there in the air somewhere. They always have something to do with somebody and some event. There's reference to history. And the history is always illuminated and made meaningful by the dreams and visions. And then on top of that complexity, we have the work of the editors. And these are the egos that went into creating the coherence and order that we find so evident in many parts of the Bible. For all of that, though, the Bible retains its visionary and symbolic quality to such a degree that history and narrative are more taken up into it, into the symbolical, than, would, than is the reverse, namely that the symbolical is reduced to mere history. The result of all this is what I think of as a single complex personality. That's what the Bible shows us. What I would like to claim, then, is that the Bible can be taken as the manifestation 
of a process at work in the collective unconscious as filtered through the experience of this particular people, the Hebrew and post-Hebrew peoples, and that throughout the narrative we must sense the presence of a spiritus rector, a guiding spirit, that guided the visionary experiences, the history, and the edited presentation. Now tradition, of course, calls this the Holy Ghost at work in producing this text. And this spiritus rector gives this personality its unique stamp. The Bible reflects an individuated or individuating personality. And what gives it its uniqueness is this guiding hand in the background, spiritus rector of the Holy Spirit. Now, it does not mean that we are trivializing the Bible by saying, by looking at it as a dream, a dream record. For the depth psychologist, the dream is not a nothing but phenomenon and something insubstantial or silly or uh, unreal. In fact, to give something the status of a dream in analytical psychology is to give it a parallel position of privilege to the position granted sacred texts in tradition. In other words, when we say that something is a dream, we're saying that it's important, something to be considered. As a tradition, we'll look to its sacred texts for revelation of divine guidance, of norms and laws that are rooted in the ultimate, as well as for consolations and hope and so on. So the analytical psychologist will look to dreams for similar depth of vision and understanding and even consolation and hope. As tradition teaches that the Holy Scriptures were divinely inspired and that their source of revelation was the Holy Spirit, so analytical psychology holds that the dream is created by the invisible hand of the self and that the dream communicates a message from the beyond, from beyond the ego, beyond what we know consciously. So by treating the Bible as a dream, we aren't reducing it in status at all. We'll take it with the utmost seriousness and attempt to find in it meanings that are relevant for ourselves. And really, it, uh, it elevates it above what uh, we would have if we treated it as a historical document, a record of uh, actual events, simply uh, historical events. Taking the Bible as a dream, then, what kind of dream do we have here? First, it's a very long night's dream. (laughs) The text of this dream was built up over some roughly 2,000 years. We must attend to the fact that there is the dream and then there is the dream text. The one is the primary experience, the dream itself, and then the other is the edited version of it. 
Now, from various studies of dreaming and dream recording, we know that the dream as experienced is not the same as the dream as recorded. The former, the dream as experienced, is a good deal more chaotic and in flux than the latter. The latter is much more polished, intact, coherent, and sequential. In transforming a dream into a dream text, the ego is at work. Ordering, explaining, censoring, and editing, and knitting the pieces together, putting one thing in front of the other. Now, if you've ever had the experience of recording your dreams on a <clears throat> in the middle of the night, say, just writing down whatever it is that you remember, and then reading it the next day, you see what I mean. It's, that's closer to the actual experience. Your, your ego isn't functioning very well in the middle of the night. Or if you speak into a tape recorder, and then listen to, the next, listen to it the next day, and then write it out to present to your analyst, let's say, okay? <clears throat> you can see your ego at work in, oh yeah, I, I, this, I remembered this first, but actually this, I think this happened first, and, and then you start doing your work, and you leave certain things out, maybe I shouldn't talk about this so much, or I'll, I'll play this down a little bit, and so on. That's the ego and its defenses at work. <clears throat> so what you, what you get in a dream text is, a, is at a remove from the dream itself. Now, scholars who have studied the Bible for the, for the past two centuries, the German scholars have been busy at work since the 18th century, and they're still going at it, as well as now every, all the other European scholars, including even Roman Catholic scholars, who are very good, but it's taken them a while to catch up with uh, the Protestants. Um, Anyway, this, this uh, mountain of scholarship over the past two cent- centuries has uncovered the identical phenomenon uh, at work in the Bible. <clears throat> there are various versions of similar stories and documents that have been edited and re-edited. Occasionally, portions of the text were censored and repressed, and the editor's biases can be discerned in what was chosen and what was left out, and in the emphases. Uh, the two versions of the creation myth in the book of Genesis, for example, are a case in point, and we'll be looking at that later. And uh, if, you, if you have a chance to read a commentary, for example, in the Jerusalem Bible at the beginning of the uh, first five books called the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible traditionally assigned to Moses uh, as the author, uh, there's a very good summary of scholarly uh, uh, summary of the scholarly work that's been done on the first five books. And uh, four authors are alluded to. They're referred to by their letters. One is the Yahwistic, one is the priestly, one is the Eloistic, and one is the Deuteronomic. They're referred to as J, E, P, and D. And the scholars have separated in the first five books of the Bible four, these four strands, these four traditions. Each has its own stylistic qualities. Um, sometimes God is referred to as Yahweh, sometimes as Elohim, and uh, in one tradition as Elohim, which is a plural form. God refers to himself as we. Yahweh is the Yahwistic tradition. And so at the beginning of the Bible, you're confronted immediately with this edited fact, uh, this fact of editorial work. 
uh, namely, you get two versions of the creation story. In the one, which is assigned to P, the priestly account, you get a kind of transcendent God who's organizing things and separating and doing his work from a distance and uh, is more theologically transcendent. And then in the second version, you get the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's the Yahwistic. Their God is referred to as Yahweh. <clears throat> so um, you can see the, uh, the hand of the editor at work in the biblical text, which is the only point I'm, I'm wanting to make right now. We'll go into some of those details later. Uh, the value of the work that these scholars have done is to assist us in discerning more clearly the original story. In other words, if you can dig through the, uh, the job of editing, you can get closer to the primary experience. And uh, in relation to the New Testament, a whole lot of work has been done on what did Jesus actually say and what did tradition say that he said. So the quest for the historical Jesus has been going on since Albert Schweitzer's time, and it's still going on. And it's a very interesting uh, uh, study and debate to try to get at what did the actual historical figure Jesus say as opposed to everything else that was attributed to him by tradition very shortly after uh, he uh, left this earth. Um, and, and what these uh, scholars are able to give us, finally, if you don't get all trapped in their uh, rather minute debates and uh, <laughs> get overly interested in the scholarly side of things, is some access, more ready access, to the primary experience. And that's a great value, I think, that, that they have done for us. Um, and, that, and this work, uh, from a psychological point of view, this work tells us something about how the ego's attitudes and defenses operated and what it was trying to do. So you, you can do an analysis of the ego uh, at work in the editing process. Now this type of scholarship does not, though, provide an interpretation of the dream's manifest content. In other words, what these scholars have done in sorting out all this material doesn't tell you necessarily uh, what it means, what the, what the content means, but it does give you access to it. This interpretation of the content is left to other interpreters, like ourselves, we hope. We can uh, take a crack at it. So in the Bible, we have a long night's dream, stretching over centuries, plus the handiwork of the tradition's ego attitude in the editorial efforts of many scribes and priests. We also have several versions of the same thing, again, as in a night's dreaming. Now, sometimes uh, you will have a, two or three different dreams, so-called, in a particular night, each of them uh, perhaps referring to the same emotional content, or at least you can make the assumption, and this is, this is usually done by Jungian analysts, that all the dreams of a particular night belong to one dream. They're all commenting on the same thing. And it's as though you've seen three different movies about the same subject, okay? And so, uh, again, it doesn't say anything against the idea that it's all, it all belongs to a single dream. It's like you can have several different thoughts about the same event. You can look at it this way and that way and that way. Your process, it's a processing of uh, experience. The result of the edit editorial work is a narrative that is more coherent and organized than the primary experience is. And this coherence 
can be a block against deeper understanding and experience if we allow our attention to fix itself too much on this aspect of coherence. When it comes to interpreting dreams, you're generally better off if you can play somewhat fast and loose with narrative structure. You must reserve the right to jump around in the text, to make odd but telling comparisons of image and figure, to trace subtle underlying motifs that on the surface seem to have little connection to each other. And students of the Bible and scholars in the tradition and so on have done this sort of thing for many generations, actually. For example, the symbol of the tree has been observed to thread its way through the Bible from its appearance in the Garden of Eden, thou shalt not eat of this tree, through the desert where Moses' pole on which he hoists the serpent is looked at as a tree, stands for a tree, kind of abstract tree, to the cross on which Jesus was crucified. So you can see, uh, even though these are three very different representations, different uh, literal images, they all belong to tree symbolism. So you can compare it. And, and these connections through the Bible have been made by biblical interpreters forever, since time immemorial, when uh, uh, one thing, a later thing stands for a former or comments on a former or modifies a former. And you can see the whole New Testament as being a commentary on the Old Testament, uh, so-called new and old. And it has a, a shadow dynamic to it, to call something new and something old. Uh, and I'll get into that, the shadow play between Old and New Testaments, re, uh, the revision that goes on in the New Testament as it refers back and lifts certain elements from the Hebrew text up into itself and transforms them and so on. <clears throat> and this, uh, this is the way one interprets a dream as well. You don't stick to the narrative account. You jump back and forth and you see how images thread their way through and how symbols develop over time and comment back on each other. If you read Jung on the dream series, for example, this is exactly what he does. He sees the dream series in a way as a single dream stretched out over many nights and uh, eventually producing a kind of symbolic vocabulary that can be read in its own terms, in its own right. He says it's like a language unfolding. You have to learn the vocabulary of that language by studying those symbols in terms of each other. When one is dealing with a long dream or dream series such as this one is, many such resonances of image and motif will leap out at us if we look, at, if we look for them. And one of the essential gifts of a talented dream interpreter is to spot these recurrences and repetitions in various contexts and then to note the subtle changes that take place as one moves back and forth in the text. Now, behind this privilege of the dream interpreter is the notion that in the unconscious, time and space are not absolute, not absolute categories. If things follow one another <clears throat> in close sequence or proximity, this may say something about their being associated to each other in the unconscious, first this, then that. Even though they're very different things, you can, uh, there is an implication that one is related to the other in some perhaps unseen way. Um, and, and psychological interpretations are doing this all the time, uh, even with conversation. Uh, an interpretation may uh, make an assumption of a connection between two things that the person who said it doesn't intend or see, 
And yet uh, the interpreter will say, oh, but you said this, and then immediately after that you said that. There must be a connection between them. And that usually has to do with shadow elements, the, the unspoken things uh, that need to be raised up into consciousness. So that's one way one can look at sequences that are close together. But just because they are not located close together does not mean that they have no close connection. In other words, things can be rather far apart uh, in the narrative sequence and still be connected. Uh, And uh, the idea is that uh, in the unconscious, in the depths of the unconscious, time and space categories are not absolute. So uh, when we say that this couldn't have happened uh, before that, because it took that to produce this, that cause and effect idea is not uh, is not necessary in the unconscious. We can think one thing uh, today and another thing tomorrow, but really, uh, in order to think this, logically speaking, we should have thought that first. But the mind doesn't work that way, and so dreaming doesn't work that way either. In the unconscious, things can happen in a in different sort of sequence. So, as we study the Bible, we will be moving back and forth in what may seem like an arbitrary manner at times, but at all points we should be able to make the argument of a connection by association in the unconscious, at least. After all, our assumption is, this entire dream comes from a single source, culturally speaking. Now, the dream interpreter has another privilege and holds it very dear, which is not assumed by other sorts of interpreters necessarily. This is the privilege of moving outside the circle of the dream text itself and comparing and contrasting its images with those of dreams, myths, religions, archetypal materials from other sources. This is what in analytical psychology we speak of as amplification, the method of amplification. And this has the function of enriching the symbol under consideration and giving us more of a cognitive handle on it and thereby providing a depth of insight that would otherwise not be available. So, for example, when we look at the creation story, uh, we can step outside of the biblical texts and go to Marie-Louise von Franz's book, Creation Myths, and look up any number of other creation myths that have some similarity or difference, points of contrast and so on, to the biblical one. Uh, We can go to myths that show us what the biblical myth leaves out. It's very important to know at the beginning of a a story, von Franz's of fairy tales, you look at the beginning of the story and you ask yourself, what's left out? What's not here? Okay. And then you look at the end of the story and you say, What's there now that wasn't there at the beginning, and how did it get there? So you look at, the, at Genesis, and you ask yourself, what's not, what's missing from this creation myth? And then you look at the end of the story, the book of Revelations, let's say, the end of the Bible. You say, what's there now that wasn't there back then? What has happened in the meantime? That gives you an idea of the transformation process that goes on in the story. Well, sometimes it's very hard to see what's not in the story. You know, if I say, uh, what's not in this room? Well, <laughs> lots of things aren't in this room, um, and you don't know what I have in mind, right? Um, 
what's not at the beginning of the story? Well, if you look at other creation myths, you start getting an idea of how other people have imagined creation or experienced it, how the unconscious expresses the idea of creation, creativity, the beginning of things in other forms. And when you put that against this one, you get a certain perspective on it. You note that certain things are absent and missing. And that's something we'll be looking at as we look at the, uh, at the beginning of the book of Genesis. What's missing there? And that says something about what is valued and what is being lifted up as uh, what kind of a God image is this, okay? As opposed to what? Uh, there are other kinds of God images, other kinds of creators, other kinds of creation uh, stories. Uh, so this privilege of stepping outside of the uh, text and outside of the tradition uh, in which the dreamer lives and is located to look for points of comparison and contrast and use this method of amplification uh, that Jung developed uh, is something that we as depth psychological dream interpreters reserve to ourselves. This is a right of dream interpretation and we will assert it vigorously. Okay. Now, this is not going to be an exercise, though, in comparative religion, which it could become, but rather it's using the resources of comparative religion for determining further layers of meaning in the dream at hand, in the text at hand. If references to fairy tales of Grimm's Germany, myths of classical Greece, beliefs and stories of the American Indians help us to understand the significance of Jacob wrestling with the angel, we will admit these amplifications into our consideration. Do you want to break for a little pause now? Get a breath of fresh air and come back for more? Why don't we do that, okay? About 15 minutes. A long night's dream. It's a dream that falls into two parts. There is a so-called Old Testament and a New Testament. And this fact will give us a lot of material for reflection in our interpretation of the biblical text. The fact that the dream is divided into old and new, prior and later, gives this dream a very special quality. In the midst of it, there is a division. And it is as though the, dream, the dreamer woke up. We won't say what he did when he woke up. <laughs> woke up for a time, then went back to sleep and dreamt some more. The second part is related intimately to the first, and yet there are enormous differences between them. These differences are crucial, and how we look upon them is crucial. And how we look upon them says a lot about us, how we, what we do with differences. Therein lies a whole story. Simply calling one old and the other new <clears throat> already sets up a dynamic, as though the former had been superseded by the latter. Of course, this was the, cr the claim of the post-Hebrews, the Christians. One could as well say, though, that the First Testament, one could as well call them the First Testament and the Second Testament. This would reverse the nuances, first denoting priority and primacy over the secondary and therefore derivative one. These two parts of the dream bring into being a deep cleavage 
a split, as we'd say in psychology, or produce the possibility for a split. And they produce a state of subtle hostility, at least at certain points. But there is also evolution and development in the movement from the first to the second, the former to the latter, as though during this long night's dreaming, an individuation process were unfolding. So we'll want to work on seeing these differences as aspects of a single unfolding individuation process and ourselves try to avoid splitting that's so in, so uh, tempting in dealing with difference differences. Now it's not unusual for a dream text to show a sharp break. You know that when you report a dream you often say, and then there was a break, and then I dreamt, and it goes on. Things are going along one way, and then suddenly it breaks, and the dream continues seemingly on another track sometimes, but related in ways that are often very interesting. In this case, we assume that it's one dream, and that for some reason this dream has been broken into two parts. Now, what's happened to cause this break may turn out to be one of the more interesting features of the dream's meaning. Why did it break? Why did it break at this particular moment and in this way, and then go on in that way? In the case of the Bible, there is both continuity and discontinuity between the two parts. In Christian doctrine, it is said that the Old Testament reveals God the Father. The Gospels reveal God the Son. And the epistles and the early history of the church after the day of Pentecost reveals God the Holy Spirit. This is the actual grounding for the doctrine of the Trinity in Christian theology. All three uh, revelations are potentially present throughout the text, but their actual manifestation is pegged to a chronological sequence. This is a Christian doctrinal view of the matter. There were, of course, strenuous debates in the early church about whether or not to combine the two testaments into one book, into one canon. The Gnostic stream of the early uh, church adherents tended to prefer to, tr to, to create a radical difference and make a big split and to treat the Old Testament God as a lesser God, if not even as a wicked demiurge sometimes, who could be, who should be overthrown and utterly superseded by the benevolent God as revealed in the New Dispensation. But as we'll see, if we read carefully between the lines of the New Testament, that God isn't altogether benevolent either. This was a psychic splitting that was going on in which uh, a good-bad distinction is the most frequent outcome of splitting. One is good and the other one's bad. And so nuances are missed. The benevolent aspects of God in the Old Testament and the um, rather severe and harsh and punishing elements of the God of the New Testament were not uh, admitted into consciousness by those particular uh, heretics as they later came to be designated. The final decision to combine the two texts into one canon recognized the continuity of the dream's revelation while allowing for the differences to be fully expressed. So we could say that the persons who finally uh, 
carried the day in terms of the tradition were the mature, individuated persons who could withstand the tension of differences and and, uh, and hold them in a, in the tension of opposition in consciousness. That's a, a sign of maturity to be able to do that. So, thankfully, the tradition uh, came out this way and therefore gives us hope to to think that it does represent maturity. This attempt to maintain continuity in the tradition can be recognized, though, both as a defense against fragmentation and liminality that's produced if you split too widely, you go into a borderline state of disintegration and anxiety, but it can also be seen as maturity and the product of an individuating personality that is able to bear the tension of uncertainty and the play of the opposites at least to some extent, to contain the Old and the New Testament within one book. Now, for a model of the psychological approach to the Bible, the psychological reading, I would refer you to Jung's answer to Job. Uh, and I, I would refer you there rather than to some others who have taken a psychological approach to the Bible, uh, and I'll comment on those later. But I think Jung's answer to Job will will be our most telling model as we go through our own uh, work on this subject. I'm thinking now especially of the combination of subjectivity and objectivity that he shows in that work. At the outset of it, when you read Answer to Job, the first thing he does in his preface is to apologize for his outburst of emotion and passion. But then he says a very interesting thing, that it was only by becoming as passionate and involved and outraged and full of emotion as his subject was, namely Job, in reaction to Yahweh, only by experiencing the emotion in the text, of the text, taking that into himself, could he really come close to understanding what the text was about. Now this kind of a passionate participation with the object of one's study doesn't decrease objectivity necessarily. Maybe in the short run it does, but not in the long run. But it transforms it from a purely rational cognitive exercise with an object out there to be studied to an intensely psychological one where you use yourself and all of, all of your parts to interpret the text and to react to it. Inter- in interpreting anything psychologically, but particularly something as important as a dream, the subjective emotional element of the interpreter's personality must also participate. The interpreter cannot stand outside and apart from the subject. He or she must enter into the drama, must become a part of it imaginatively. And you see Jung doing a kind of active imagination with the Bible, actually, in answer to Job. The interpreter must let him or herself feel the emotional issues at stake in the text, feel them by becoming involved with them, arguing with the figures, shouting at God the way Jung does in answer to Job. This is precisely what Jung does in the book of Job, and it's what I recommend that we do also in studying the Bible for in this course. Whether you want to do it generally after this course or not, I leave to you. 
Now, in this kind of a full psychological interpretive act, the whole being of the interpreter becomes his or her tool. If you let your mind and spirit go over the text as you read it, do not exclude your emotions and your feelings. Allow them in. Let the text touch you wherever it will, whether it's emotionally, physically, maybe you get sick or you get euphoric, or you get emotional and start crying, or you are inspired with all kinds of associations and ideas. Follow it all. Record it all. Keep it all, put it all in your computer, in your conscious container. And let the text have its full effect on your being. In this way, there can develop a dialogue between the subject and the object, between the interpreter and the text. Let the text come alive. And let yourself associate freely with the text. Play with it. Uh, Even if you have off-the-wall associations, pull in your own life history, your own experience, anything that pops into mind, Uh, things you've read, things that are important to you. And let your imagination and your emotion have full play in relation to the text that you're studying. And go back and forth with it. Dialogue with it. Have active imagination. And then let your mind wander over into other areas of knowledge. If you know something about other myths, stories, fairy tales, movies, images from other cultures and other times, anything that collects itself in your mind to this particular text and the themes and images in it. And most of all, let your own personal material come into play with the text. In this way, you develop a full psychological response to the text. And you become the interpreter. Your being interprets the text. Then even deeper, watch your dreams. I would refer you to an essay that I wrote about Jung's um, interpretation of of some texts in a book called um, Jung's Challenge to Contemporary Religion where uh, in in his autobiography, Jung describes uh, a dream reaction that he had to a particular text, and then he goes on to compare these two, uh, his dream figure with the figure from the text. If you become passionately involved with the text and let it move you on different levels, your dreams may well respond to it. And make the assumption, if you, if the last thing before you go to bed at night is some kind of intense, imaginative involvement with a text, when you wake up the next morning and record your dream, simply make the leap of faith that the dream has something to do with that text and let it become a commentary on the text. In this way, perhaps the most profound dialogue of all, dream to dream and dreamer to dreamer, can take place. If you make the biblical text a problem for yourself, you may well dream about it, and this will give you a further commentary upon the text, depth answering to depth. In more technical language, you are letting a transference or a counter-transference reaction build up in you, and this will give you important information about the text. This will actually give you very important information about the text, sometimes what the text has left out. Sometimes what's not in the text is precisely what you will dream to fill it in. This will be, however, rather indirect information or information about something that's not quite directly to the text. 
For example, if you find yourself becoming unaccountably angry at a certain place when you're reading, even though you're thinking about something else, make a leap of faith and regard the possibility that the dreamer here is angry too, that there's some anger in the text. Perhaps the dreamer, the text, the text maker, is angry about something different or angry for a different reason, but trust your reaction. And remember that it's your task to interpret the text, not yourself, and your emotional, mental, and unconscious reactions are placed in the service of this task. So you take your emotional reaction as a comment on the text, on the dreamer. God is telling you, don't, don't take the burden on yourself and start analyzing yourself and saying, well, the text is making me feel guilty, and now I feel guilty for this and this reasons. I better go make a confession. Don't do it that way. If you experience guilt, make an assumption that there's something in the text that's at work. What is it? Is it an accuser, an accusing voice in the text? Maybe the text maker, the dreamer in the text, is feeling guilty at this point. What would the dreamer be feeling guilty about? You see, use your countertransference in that way, the way a therapist does. When a therapist sits there with a patient and starts feeling guilty, he doesn't ask himself, what is he feeling guilty about? He asks himself, what is the patient feeling guilty, guilty about and not telling me? Okay? So you, you become like an, uh, you, you develop a, a transference, a counter-transference relationship with the text and relate all of your material to the text. You are reacting to the text, to something in the text, perhaps to something between the lines of the text. And this point of emotional contact will allow you to get a glimpse into the emotional unconscious background of the text. You have to assume that the text is a cover-up as well as a revelation. Okay, the editors are covering something. They're repressing something. They're leaving something out. They're unspoken, unsaid things, but they're all there. They're all just under the surface, and you will start reacting to them. And your reactions will start telling you what those things are. So let yourself have your reactions and trust them, and use them to interpret the text, even if they're off the wall. Don't worry about it. You don't have to publish this and go to the stake if you're wrong. <laughs> If you find this method of working with a text somewhat subversive, you have only your own psychology to thank for that. <laughs> that is, your psychology is doing the subversion. Of course, the psychological, particularly the depth psychological approach, is subversive to all givens, all things that present themselves as finished and done. Anything that uh, comes forward too well packaged, all finished and done, is simply the beginning of a psychological interpretation where the interpreter says, well, let's look into this a little further. <clears throat> By allowing the subject to respond and to participate fully in the act of interpretation, this method, the psychological method, allows for a mingling of psyches that will ultimately change and transform both. And this is Jung's view on the transference-countertransference process. When the analyst and the analysand become deeply engaged at Conscious and unconscious levels, they're both changed. The, the ideas in both of them change, the attitudes change, their unconscious structures change, they are both transformed. And so something like this can happen. The text becomes transformed by being recast in the mold of a new interpretation each time by each individual interpreter. In a way, you produce your own Bible by reading it this way. 
you produce your own text. It's an individual text. There are no right and wrong interpretations. Just put right and wrong out of your head completely. You can't be wrong. You can't be right either. You just be yourself. There are strong and weak interpretations. There are persuasive and confusing interpretations if you listen to somebody else, but the right-wrong dichotomy is eliminated. The interpreter must also may also be changed in this process. As Jung says many times about the analyst being changed in the process of psychotherapy. Two psyches engage, both change, both individuate. Thus the feeling of subversion can spread over into the subject. The text may subvert you. You may change. You may shift your perspectives and attitudes and depths of meaning that you didn't know were there before may be revealed to you. Again, there is no right or wrong to this. It's not right or better if you are converted into a believer. I mean, maybe by re- and this has happened. People have read the Bible and have become converts simply on the basis of reading the New Testament. That's why evangelicals are passing the New Testament out all the time, you know, on the street corners. It does have that effect. People read it, and they are gripped by it, and they become converts. Now, that, that is a reaction. They are changed. People are changed by reading this text. It's a very powerful text. But I'm not saying that's a, a necessarily a good thing. We could argue about that, good, bad, or indifferent. It is an effect. Something happens necessarily what we're aiming at here. It's fine if you become a believer and a convert, or if you become an unbeliever by reading the text. It doesn't matter. The right-wrong dichotomy is subverted completely in favor of active engagement, mingling of psyches, producing a new amalgam, keeping the psychic process alive and moving. So aliveness, libido, emotional engagement, depth of penetration and insight along with a feeling of the transformational process at work in the interpreter. These are the primary values, rather than right or wrong. Life is the value, as Jung often said. <clears throat> the therapist is mainly interested in, li- in his life, living, not being right or wrong. <clears throat> in the following sections, we cannot attempt, uh, in, in other words, in the, in the weeks to come, in the... Uh, uh, various themes that we'll be considering, we can't possibly attempt an exhaustive interpretation of of the dream that is the Bible. And I hope you don't expect to be educated in the Bible generally. It's actually, this work assumes that you already know what the Bible is and you've read it and know something about it. Uh, So it's not a Sunday school class or Bible study class in that sense. We have to select several themes and images for consideration, and I hope they will be fundamental ones and key themes in the Bible. But we also have to say that there are many others uh, available that we can't possibly take the time for. And this is the selection I've made for the coming sessions. The first one is on origins, beginnings, creation. And for this, we'll read the first chapters, first three chapters of Genesis, and the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And if you want to read more than that on this subject, I would recommend some other uh, 
there are some psalms that have to do with creation. You can look them up in a commentary or in a, in a uh, concordance. <clears throat> uh, and then the opening of the synoptic gospels, particularly the gospel of Luke, has to do with beginnings and creation. And um, in this part of our study, we will confront the issue of creation, creativity, the beginnings of the ego's awareness and the ego's re-experience of the origination of itself and of awareness at other levels. In other words, we're going to treat this as psychological creation of the, the ego coming into being. And we'll talk about the ego and the self using some of that terminology. And then the second one, uh, I've reversed this from the catalog, by the way, made an alteration. The second one will be on the subject of good and evil and the problem of the shadow. And here the figure of Satan is going to be particularly important. In Satan, as he appears in both the Old and the New Testaments, and for this, the book of Job. We will have already read the Genesis story, the book of Genesis, of course, the serpent in the garden, and then the book of Job, particularly the first couple of chapters of it, where there's the scene in heaven, the court, God speaking with, with uh, Satan and so on. And then the book of John, the Gospel of John, which has very strong imagery of light and darkness. And also perhaps some passages from the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and these we'll put into a certain kind of juxtaposition with each other and look at points of contrast, development. If you want to read a book about Satan, uh, there's a very good one called Satan in the Old Testament by Rifka Sheriff Kluger. K-L-U-G-E-R, who was a very important figure in the Jungian circles in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, particularly. She worked with Jung in Zurich. She was a biblical scholar, trained at the University of Zurich, and a Jungian analyst as well, and uh, wrote a couple of books. The most important for Jung was Satan in the Old Testament. He refers to that book in his own answer to Job. And then there's a collection of her essays called uh, Psyche and Bible. Very important and good, interesting, well-thought-out paper on chosenness, which we will be considering later, too. The subject of chosenness, election, adoption, specialness, so on, which is so important in the Bible. For the chosen people, so on. <coughs> Then we're going to look at the subject of individuation and the journey of faith. And here the two figures will be especially important, Abraham and Jesus. So stories about Abraham in the book of Genesis, and then a selection of passages uh, from the Gospels about Jesus, and some passages from the epistles of St. Paul. <clears throat> and we'll consider the relation of faith to the individuation process. Very important issue. 
And then the fourth, which will conclude our semester, and we'll continue in the winter, uh, the fourth is on the subject of bondage and freedom. And here the readings will include stories of the Exodus, uh, where the Hebrews leave Egypt under the leadership of Moses, the story of Samson, and the story of Jesus and Legion, a man who is possessed by the demons, and passages from St. Paul's letters bearing on the subject of freedom in the spirit versus slavery to the law. And we must consider the ego's relation to the mother, to the unconscious, to the complexes, and finally to the self, as we look at this powerful motif in the Bible, bondage and freedom. Then when we continue uh, in the winter, we will look at anima images, important feminine figures in the Bible, from Eve to Mary, women who are significant in the biblical narrative, and comparing and contrasting them and looking at various aspects and uh, ways in which the feminine is represented in this dream. This dream, the Bible contains many anima images, and all of these tell something about the dreamer's soul. The anima is a soul image. So the question of how Eve came into being is important, and what she did. The question of Mary and what she did, and so on. And then the theme of fathers and sons. Images of fathers and sons. Images of the masculine. Fathers and sons as they are linked in important psychological ways. And here the main figures for our consideration and points of contrast and comparison are going to be Abraham and Isaac, the father who was asked to sacrifice his son and then let off the hook at the last minute. And then contrasting to that, the heavenly father of the New Testament and Jesus who was sacrificed. So we'll be thinking about that theme, fathers and sons and the sacrifice, the father's sacrifice of the son, the son's submission to the father, and so on, in terms of what does this say about this dream and this dreamer, this personality. And then the theme of election and adoption, one of the fundamental themes of the Bible. The chosen, the chosenness of this people that created the Bible, their sense of chosenness. And what this sense of chosenness sets into motion, uh, the dynamics that are set into motion in terms of sibling rivalry and envy particularly, as well as narcissistic involvement in specialness and being special, and how this is worked on and broken in the course of the individuation process, how it's worked through. First of all, the importance of of the sense of chosenness and being chosen in the development of the ego. It's absolutely essential to feel that. And then as the ego grows, how that has to be worked through to the sense of greater wholeness, submission to the self, 
so on in the course of the individuation process. And how that theme unfolds itself in the Bible and, and uh, is one of the important individuation threads that runs through the text. And then finally, in our last session, we will consider the themes of kingship and servanthood. You know, the Hebrews badly wanted a king and demanded a king of the, of the uh, judges got their kings. So the theme of kingship is very important. God is king. Christ is king later. And running side by side the theme of servanthood and uh, service and being of service to others, being the lowly servant. And this paradoxical combination as it comes together in certain individuals of being both kingly and servant. And here the images the king and servant, the developmental issues of ego growth and ego relativization in the service of the self will be brought for consideration. Now for each of these themes, several texts will be looked at and studied in some detail, although we won't become biblical scholars and uh, go into all the detail possible in our study of these texts. <clears throat> Rather, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to read them in the way that I suggested, that you re- read the text from week to week and let your whole being become involved, and to the extent that you feel inclined to, to uh, perhaps look at some commentaries on the texts from biblical scholarship, or um, to read, just read generally in the Bible and see if anything uh, associates itself to the themes. Uh, and most importantly, letting your own fantasy uh, life be engaged, your own thoughts, associations, and your own unconscious. And throughout, uh, we'll be using a lot of theoretical terms and tools from analytical psychology to assist us in getting at the text and coming closer to its psychological meaning. Um, But while these terms are extremely useful, terms like anima, shadow, self, ego, and so on, individuation, and they'll be fully employed as we proceed, it must be emphasized that what makes a reading of the Bible as dream psychological is not the use of psychological terms and tools, but rather the critical engagement of psyche to psyche. That's really what gives an interpretation its psychological emphasis. It's this emotional factor that sets this approach apart from from other ones. So we'll fold into our considerations, certainly everything that we know theoretically about the psyche and our own experience of it and all the terms and uh, our tradition of analytical psychology and so on will be brought to bear. But nevertheless, what really makes it psychological, a reading of the Bible psychological, is the emotional component rather than all of this apparatus. You know that Jung defined the psyche as emotionality. So... uh, Nothing can claim to be psychological that isn't emotional. It has to be emotional. Emotions have to be gripped and engaged in it. 
And so uh, we'll put a particular emphasis there. The result may be that our interpretations look like they're just completely idiosyncratic and off the wall. But uh, as I said before, we aren't going to worry about being right or wrong. I want to really open it up for engagement and play. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.